Welcome everyone. We are passionate at Church Alive, helping people fulfill God's potential for their lives. And that means developing, building, coaching, inspiring leaders. And so I hope you'll have a leaning factor that today you can grow. Today you can take on a new mentality, a new mindset. And as you allow God to prune you, lift you, other people to inspire you, learn from you, you can become all that God has destined you to become. Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Steve. I'm one of the pastors on team here at Church Alive, and we want to welcome you to our worship service today. This weekend, we're celebrating the 4th of July. We're remembering and celebrating the freedom and the independence that we have as a country. You know, in 2020, it's been a difficult year to say the least. We've seen incredible tension erupt in our country and things happen from the pandemic to all of the different social justice issues that we see going on. But I wanna encourage you today to not let those circumstances rob you of the ability to see that we live in the most incredible country in the entire world. So as we pray this morning, I wanna encourage you to join with me and pray for freedom and for God's peace to be felt by every single person in this incredible place that we call home. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, Father God, for today. I thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity and the blessing that we have to live in the most incredible country that has ever existed. So, Father, we lift up the United States to you. We lift up our nation. We lift up our state, our city to you, Father God. And, Lord, we pray, Father, that you would pour out your blessing onto all of your people, that, Father God, your peace would come, that, Lord, there would be an end to the pandemic, that, Father, there would be resolution to all of the problems that we see in the world around us. Father, we know that the only answer to the problems that we see in this world is you. Jesus, we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We thank you that you make yourself known to us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when I say the word peace, I don't know what that word means to you. If you get 10 people in a room and you ask them what peace means, the odds are you're going to get 10 slightly different answers that have similar themes going on about them. But if I were to ask you the question this today, how do you go about finding peace? The odds are your answer is going to be unique. So maybe there's some of you here that you find peace in a boat out in the middle of the ocean where you feel the sea mist on your face and you, you have that smell of the salt water. Maybe for some of you here, you find peace out on a trail in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, where you hear just the sounds of nature around you. You don't hear the cars or the transportation, the airplanes or the trains or anything like that. But maybe for some of you, peace is actually found just with a book in a coffee shop with a friend. There's so many different ways that we go about finding peace, right? You know, about 10 years ago, I had a way of trying to find peace for myself. And it actually had to do with where Church Alive is right now. So we've only been in this building for under two years at the moment. But outside in the parking lot here, there is a gazebo. And so back in the day, when I used to be stressed out with work, when I was having a rough day, or I wasn't, you know, I had had an argument with a friend or something like that, this is the place that I would come to try to calm down. Now, mom and dad, I know you're probably watching, so I want to tell you I'm sorry about this, but I have to tell everybody, I used to be a smoker. I'm pretty sure you guys know, mom and dad, but anyway. So what I used to do to try to find peace when I came down to the gazebo, I would go to the Exxon station that's right in the corner of the Church of Life parking lot right now. I'd get a pack of cigarettes. I would get a large coffee from my friend Sharif. We were on first name basis, me and the cashier. And I would come over here to this gazebo right here in our parking lot. 
and I would sit down. And I would sit there by the side of the water. I would watch the river go by. I would listen to the cars go over the bridge because it has that steel decking and it gives you that, that rhythmic sound as they go. You and I would just sit there and I would just let myself take in the moment. Isn't that what it's about when we're trying to find peace? It's about taking in the moment, isn't it? So I would stay here for about a half hour or I don't know how long I would be here. It depends on how bad my day was going, right? But I noticed something. When I would go to leave, I would start to feel that anxiety come back on me. I would start to lose the peace that I had found while I sat here for a half hour or 45 minutes or an hour. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. I don't know about you. Maybe you're this type of person or maybe you have somebody in your family. But when you're on vacation and it's the second to last day of vacation, how many people have ever said or have heard somebody say, oh, vacation's going to be over tomorrow? That's true. It's over tomorrow. We're still on vacation today, though, so let's live in today. Yeah, it's going to be over tomorrow. Maybe we should think about packing tonight. And, and what is that tension that we feel? It is having to go back to reality, isn't it? Why do we feel that? Why is it that when we do something that we find to bring us peace, like me in the gazebo or you in any of the ways that you do it, why is it that when we start to leave that situation, it feels like our peace leaves us? I noticed something about the peace that I found in the gazebo. That peace was temporary, and it was ineffective to change any of the circumstances that robbed me of my peace in the first place. I'm going to say that one more time. That peace that I found in the gazebo, it was only temporary, and it was ineffective to change any of the circumstances that robbed me of my peace in the first place. We're in a series right now called Essential, Agents of Reconciliation. And over the last couple of weeks, we have heard incredible sermons from our senior pastors about what it looks like to be agents of reconciliation. How are you and I impacting the world that is around us? How are you and I being the light of God and the hope, showing the hope for humanity in essence? But I want to tell you something this morning or this afternoon, depending on when you're watching this. You can't give what you don't have. And so today, I want to speak to you about the peace of God and about how the peace of God is something that you and I are entitled to by the sacrifice of Jesus. It is something that has been freely given to us, and it is something that does not leave us. The Apostle Paul is one of the most incredible figures in the entire Bible. He wrote over a third of the New Testament, and the writings of the Apostle Paul have shaped modern theology like no one else. He was a man, though, that earlier in his life did not know Jesus, did not know God the way that he knew him when he wrote the things that he wrote. We see earlier in his life that he was known as Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul was a very educated man. He was somebody that had studied the Judaic faith so much. He understood what the Hebrew Scriptures said. He understood the law of Moses. Paul would have understood what sin meant. Paul understood the sacrificial system that was put in place that was there to deal with the sin, the sin that separates us from God, that it is an impossible thing to cover. The sacrifices that Paul knew about were only sufficient to deal with sin in a temporary basis. Now, Saul 
had this incredible faith in, in, in um, Judaism. He had this incredible faith in the God of the Bible. But he didn't know who Jesus Christ was. And so when the Christian faith exploded into his area in the beginning of the book of, book of Acts, we see how the beginning of the church happened. And we see that thousands of people were being added to the church daily. Saul saw this, and he basically saw early Christianity as a cult. And so because of his incredible faith in the God of the Old Testament and in the law of Moses and in the, Judeas, the, the Judaic faith, when he saw what Christianity was, he actually thought it was a cult. So the, Saul would go after Christians. The Bible says that he was a murderer. He would hunt down Christians to wipe out this cult, to wipe out this sect off the face of the earth. And we see an incredible moment when Saul is traveling on the road to Damascus where Jesus appears to him. Jesus comes in a blinding light and Paul is blinded, falls to the ground. Now a very interesting thing is, Jesus says... He does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Why did you kill those people? No, what Jesus actually says to him is, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus stood in front of all of the people that Saul had gotten rid of and all of the people that Saul was trying to get rid of in the moment. And he said, why are you persecuting me? Then we see Saul was blind for three days and then a man named Ananias was sent by the Lord to pray for him and his vision was restored. After that moment, Saul, now known as Paul, was on fire for God. All of the things in the past that he knew had been redeemed. All of his understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, now he saw through the lens of grace, through the lens of forgiveness. And so he was a man on a mission, and he was a man who was on fire for Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. This man, the Apostle Paul now incredibly has this incredible encounter with the risen Lord. He hears him. He, sees, he doesn't see him. He gets blinded by him. But what a moment. And now God knew that Paul would write what he wrote. God knew that Paul would found church after church and plant church after church after church all across the Mediterranean region. God knew what Paul was going to do. So do you think that God when it gave him a supernatural blessing. It would make sense almost, right? It seems like if you're going to do all of these incredible things, I'm going to take care of you, right? Wrong. And what we actually find is that the Apostle Paul had it pretty rough. And in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 30, the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of an insight of all of the things, and this is probably not everything, that he has gone through. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. That's 195 lashings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three? After two, what are we doing? We're getting back on a boat? Okay, go ahead. Boom. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, which were the Jews, and danger from the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So basically, every human being on earth is a danger to him. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, Animals were trying to kill him. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure. And then he says this, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all 
of the churches. Wow. <laughs> On the list of the stuff that Paul just spit out, of all of the crazy things that he has been through, all of the abuse that this man has endured at the hands of other people, and yet he culminates this list of stuff with my anxiety for all of the churches. Paul was a man that was on a mission. Paul endured things consistently that would break normal people probably. I don't know about you, but I don't know how many times I would get back on a boat. I don't know how many times I would want to get beaten with a rod or stoned. Yet the Apostle Paul seems to have this unwavering, unshakable thing going on about him. That thing that Paul had is the peace of God. The peace of God is what enabled him to do what he did. Paul's spirit had been redeemed, and Paul's spirit became the driving force about him. Paul wrote his letter to the church in Philippi, or the letter to the Philippians, approximately five years, give or take, based on dating. There's no certain date. Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians approximately five years after he wrote 2 Corinthians. And so the, the dating, you know, there's not an exact date that we know he wrote the letters. But more or less, we see that there was approximately a five-year span based on the historical things that we see in the two letters. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while he was in prison. Now, when I say the word prison, I'm not sure what you're thinking. See, in America, when we say the word prison, for the most part, most prisoners live in a place or imprisoned in a place where they have three meals a day, where they have maybe the access to a library or reading materials. They may have the ability to go back and pursue a degree or a high school equivalency or something like that. They're able to go outside and do things. That's, sometimes when, I, when we say the word prison, maybe we're thinking that. The Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, was, in, was imprisoned in conditions that you and I would consider simply inhumane. The odds are he was locked in a small steel cage. And this is the place that he wrote the letter of Philippians. And we see something incredible in this letter that maybe provides us some insight on how the Apostle Paul dealt with all of the things that had happened to him in 2 Corinthians. And you know, with, that was the list that he wrote then. We have no idea kind of all of the things that he dealt with after he wrote that letter, right? And so if we look at Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives us something, a little bit of an insight, and it maybe will help us understand how he dealt with and continued to deal with so many trying circumstances. He says in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, rejoice in the Lord always. That's a hard stop. There's, there's, no, there's no qualifier on that. Rejoice in the Lord when blank. He simply says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, again, I will say rejoice. He really means it. We need to rejoice, right? He says, let your reasonableness be, I can never say that word, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In these couple verses, what we see is actually a formula, or it's an approach that the Apostle, the Apostle Paul has and it is something that enables him to stay in peace. 
Now, one thing I do want to point out, towards the end of the scripture there, there's the word guard. And in the original Greek, the word that is used there, it has a military, um, it's a military term. And so the word guard, you know, in English can mean different things. You know, guard can mean simply something that you put as a barrier to give yourself a little bit of protection between something. Now, if I were to put a piece of plexiglass, right, when we go shopping now, we see plexiglass all over the place when we're at checkout lines, right? That is guarding. That is a guard, right? But the word that is used here for guard, it, it has a military connotation. It means, in essence, that there is active defense going on. It, has, it, has the, it comes with it, the imagery of someone actively defending against an attack from an enemy. So now let me say something that may be obvious as I'm talking about military terminology. That, to me, means that there's a battle going on. So notice something. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your what? Your hearts and your minds. That means that there is a very real battle going on for your heart and for your mind. This battle seeks to rob you of the peace that God gives you. So let's take a step back and look at that pattern real quick for a moment. What is the first thing that the Apostle Paul says in those scriptures? That What does he command them to do? He says, rejoice always. Hard stop again. So in everything, you and I are rejoicing. We are always rejoicing. We are always praising God for all circumstances that are going on around us. But then he says, in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. So wait a minute, I'm rejoicing always, but then in everything, so I'm rejoicing. That is primary what's going on. But then anything else that happens, uh, that happens in the world around me, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, so anything that happens, I'm already rejoicing, but in everything that happens around me, I'm going to pray. I am going to petition God with thanksgiving, thanking him for his goodness, thanking him for his faithfulness, for his grace, thanking him for his blessings. In all circumstances, I am bringing everything back to God. But in all circumstances, I remain rejoicing. And then we see the culmination of those two things. Those two things put together, then the scripture says, and the peace of God. And the peace of God. The and is the concluding word there. It weaves everything together. It says, rejoicing always in prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. So Paul has given us the pattern that has given him victory. While things have oppressed him, while things he's in prison at the moment, while all of these things have gone wrong for him, he still gives us a formula of how he's been able to keep pushing, how he's been able to keep keeping on. Imagine that. After two shipwrecks, if Paul was living out what he wrote at the time of 2 Corinthians, when he had already endured two shipwrecks, that means that he was actually rejoicing at the opportunity to get on the third boat. It wasn't like you and I maybe would be like, oh, I don't know about boats anymore. They sink. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul knew what his mission was. He knew what he was on earth to do. And it was to spread the love of Jesus and the light and the message of salvation to every single person who could hear it. So when the Apostle Paul had another opportunity to get on a boat, he didn't care about the two shipwrecks before. He cared about the opportunity to witness. And so he gladly, likely, and rejoiced and got on the boat. 
he was able to endure unimaginable circumstances and remain peaceful. And it's because the peace of God that he has, had, the peace of God that he lived in, it guards our hearts and it guards our mind. So now let me ask you, you know, we're talking about the peace of God and we see a little bit of a formula of how we can remain in the peace of God, how we can um, not allow external circumstances to, to, to shake us, to throw us around. But if that's something that we can have, then what exactly is it? So the dictionary defines peace as freedom from disturbance, tranquility, a state or a period in which there is no war or a war has ended. Now notice something about those definitions. All of those definitions, in essence, are temporary because they're all contingent on something not happening. Right? So all of those definitions of peace, the way that the world sees peace, it is always tentative because things can happen overnight that can send an entire region into a war. One moment can take an incredibly peaceful atmosphere and all of the peace seems like in a second it can just leave. That is the peace that the world gives. That is the way the world understands peace to be. We need to understand peace from a different perspective. In John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In this moment in his life, Jesus was getting towards the end of his time on earth. He was getting towards the end of his ministry. Jesus is preparing his disciples and he's praying for them. He's praying for many different things in these couple chapters out of the book of John. In fact, he prayed for you and me. But in this moment, Jesus says something to the disciples to communicate the certainty that he was leaving. In John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. Now that word, peace, that, that phrase, peace I leave with you, would have been the Hebrew word shalom. And in the Hebrew vernacular, the word shalom isn't just a word that means bye, see you later. It is a word that actually has very strong meaning associated with it. The word shalom means peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. It was a benediction. It was a prayer of blessing that you left on somebody as you were departing. Because maybe I wouldn't see you again, but I want to leave all of these things with you. So Jesus says to the disciples, shalom. And they instantly, immediately would have understood the connotation of what he was saying. Like, oh no. He's, he's really leaving. But then he says something. He changes the definition. He changes the way that they understood peace. Jesus comes and changes the way that we understand peace because then he says, my peace I give to you. Shalom. I'm leaving, but here, blessings be upon you. But then he says, my peace I give to you. He goes on to say, not as the world gives do I give you. So let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. The peace of Jesus gets rid of fear and dread because the spirit which is surrendered to him knows and trusts that he is in control of all things. Jesus makes a personal offer of peace to us. It is the peace that we feel deep down inside because when we experience salvation, 
we know that that sin that separated us, right, the sin that the Apostle Paul understood in his early life as something that required sacrifice after sacrifice, he saw in the person of Jesus it was one sacrifice for all time that was suitable, acceptable, and pleasing to God in heaven to atone for all of the sin. And he makes an offer to us, even today, that by faith if we receive the sacrifice of Jesus, we will be saved. The peace of God comes to a spirit that has been redeemed and restored. It comes to a spirit that has been set alive again because of faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says that we are made of three parts. We are composed of a spirit, a soul, and a body. The peace of God comes to a spirit that is made right before God. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, it says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when you and I experience salvation, we receive everything we need for godliness and life. It says in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Jesus took the handwriting that was against us. Jesus took all of the things you and I would ever do, and then by his blood and by his sacrifice, he nailed that list to the cross, and he atoned for it. When you and I put our faith in Jesus, it is the understanding deep down within that I am forgiven, that I am set free, that I'm not defined by my failures. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by the ways that I'm going to screw up in the future. But understanding deep within me that in my spirit I know that when I breathe my last breath here on earth, I know exactly where I'm going. We're alive together with him. We're no longer strangers, but we're part of the family. We have been made right with God. That is the peace that God gives us, and that is the peace that anchors us. So this new identity has to permeate into the other parts of us. This spirit that has been set free, that has been made alive together with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, that part of me has to become the driving force of everything that I do. That part of me has to become the loudest. That part of me has to be what my soul, which is my will, my mind, my emotions, all of that has to catch up and be subject to what my spirit says to do. My body has to be subject to what my spirit says to do. When we live in proper spiritual order, where my spirit is taking the lead, then that means that I'm able to rejoice always. That means that in all circumstances, when things come my way, instead of practically trying to analyze it, I'm able to pray about it, to send thanksgiving to God about it, and then put my faith behind what I'm asking God to do in a circumstance. It doesn't mean that life is easy. It doesn't mean that opposition won't come. But it means that the lens by which you and I see it is entirely different. Our minds and our hearts have to be guarded. And what I just said maybe makes some sense with some of you. We have to have our minds guarded because what are some of the things that try to rob us of our peace? It's the circumstances that go on around us. It's things that I'm out of control of, right? And it's so easy to sit there and think to myself, I can't see a virus. I don't know how to help people who are hurting with everything that's going on in this country sometimes. We have these thoughts, right? But those thoughts, when my soul is in the lead, 
they rob me of the ability to effectively pray sometimes. They rob me of the ability to have faith to see confidently into the future for God to move. But when my spirit's in the lead, it doesn't mean that I don't experience disappointment. It doesn't mean that I don't experience moments of uncertainty or moments that I can't explain. But what it means is that if I am always rejoicing and if I am always in all circumstances praying, it means I'm being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I'm listening to God. And that means that in all circumstances, my mind and my heart, they're defended. They are guarded. It means that I can come and deal with the things that try to come against us. To come against me, I should say. When our soul is in charge, we're subject to emotions based on circumstance and not a faith which is based in truth. Circumstances change. Truth doesn't. So I want to encourage you today. Evaluate. How are you in this area? Do you think and feel like you have the peace of God? And if you don't, what could be some of the things that have robbed you of your peace? Has your heart been disappointed and gotten hard? Have you gone through hard times that you couldn't explain and mentally you just went through a process by which you distanced yourself from Jesus? The peace of God is available to every single person, every single person who's hearing this. But we need to make our spirit the loudest part of us. We need to have our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, our body in subject to our spirit. Now this is kind of an incredible thought just as much as the gazebo outside, which has been here for as long as I can remember, quite honestly. But 10, 12 years ago, I was coming here to try to find peace in every way that I knew how. But like I said, it was a peace that it wasn't permanent. It was temporary, and it wasn't effective to change any of the circumstances that robbed me of my peace in the first place. That gazebo now has been redeemed in a way. It's part of the church. It's part of the place where people come to hear about hope, to encounter the power of the risen Jesus Christ, to find healing, to find freedom, to find community. That gazebo has been redeemed. So now I want to ask you a question today. Are there parts of you that need to be redeemed as well? You and I put our faith in Jesus. You and I have made ourselves right with him. But the reality is that there's an ongoing process by which throughout our entire lives, we continue to look more like him. It would be great if at the moment of salvation, everything was just made right. I was just Christ-like in everything that I did until the day that I died. But you and I know that that is not the reality of the world. You know, I, I look at my kids. I look at my daughter who's three and a half right now. Hi, Agnes. And I look at how she's growing. I look at how she's learning to be nice. <laughs> She's learning to tell the truth because we figured out what lying is. She's learning and I'm helping her along her journey to grow. I'm helping her to, in a way, look more like dad. And there's something when I see my daughter come and give me a hug or when she comes and she trusts me with something that's hurting her or something that she's upset about. There's something in my heart as a father that wants to just love her that wants to just help her overcome. But I can't do what she doesn't, I can't help what she doesn't give me, right? Just as much as I want to see my daughter grow, can you imagine what your Father in Heaven thinks about you? I can't even put words around 
There's nothing suitable to convey the love that God has for you. Every earthly way we have to communicate love or affection, God far infinitely exceeds it. So he looks at you and he needs you to trust him. He needs you to bring and surrender those things that hold you back, the things that hurt, the things that maybe you've thought your entire life have defined you, but they shouldn't be. God needs you to trust him so that those parts of you can get redeemed and so that those parts of you can continue to be part of your story. But maybe there's some of you watching today and you've never made the conscious decision to surrender the ownership of your life to Jesus. I wanna tell you that today, you can. You can put your faith in the one who by his death, burial, and resurrection, he conquered sin and death. He makes his forgiveness available to every single person. And the Bible says that if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So in a moment, I'm gonna say a prayer. And if that's you watching, I would love to encourage you to pray this prayer along with me. Now, it is not the specific words that save you. It is not the combination or the sentences that save you. It is what's going on in your heart as you surrender your life to him. As you say, God, there is nothing I could do on my own that would ever cross that impassable chasm between us that sin put there. It is only by you, Jesus that I can encounter eternal life. It is only by you that I can be set free. It is only by you that my spirit will come alive, that it will become the strongest part of me, and it will help me impact the world around me. So would you say this prayer with me today? Jesus, I love you. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe that you died, that you were buried, but that you rose again. Today I surrender all of my doubt, all of my sin, all of my past, and I believe that I am forgiven because of you. Lord, live in me, empower me, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you said that prayer for the first time today, we want to rejoice with you. We want to tell you that there is a party going on in heaven today because you came home. You've experienced the peace of God that far surpasses all understanding. The peace of God that's been made available to you and that other people watching have experienced before, it's not just that salvation moment, but there's ongoing moments as we continue to grow in our relationship with him that the Lord will refresh you, he will restore you, and he will allow all of the things that are happening inside to be still in his presence. So if you said that prayer today for the first time, we want to know about it. And we'd love for you to text CONNECT7 to the number 97000. And we want to send you some resource. We want to connect with you. And we want to be able to pray for you as you go on this journey along with us. So church, let me pray for you real quick as we end today. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your peace. I thank you, Lord, for your peace, which is made available to every single person. Lord, we honor you, we worship you, and we say that the name of Jesus is bigger, it is stronger, it is better than any circumstance, than anything that comes against us, than anything that tries to come against our minds and our hearts. And I pray, Father, for victory over every single person watching here today, victory in mind, victory in emotion, victory in 
hearts, Father God. I pray, Lord, that as we identify and we lay hold of what you accomplished on the cross, that, Father God, there would be something that would just shift in the hearts of your people today, that, Father, there would be a passion that would come that wasn't there before, but, Lord, that there would be a peace, a peace that is foundational, that people will stand on, so when the things of this world come against them, they don't get tossed around like a wave of a sea, but they remain sure and steadfast in you. I thank you, Lord, that we can rejoice in all circumstances. I pray, Father, that people would be sensitive to you and that, Lord, they would bring to you everything in all circumstances and that the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, that it would guard our hearts and our minds. In the name of your precious Son, we pray today. Amen.